Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit, take your word. Renew our minds. Inflame our hearts so that our lives will bring you the honor that you alone deserve. And we ask this in the name above all names, the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. For more than two decades, I taught a required seminary course for, now picture this, first year, first semester students, their first time at graduate school. And so I always, because I'm such a gracious guy, I always started that class with the feared words, pop quiz. <laughs> and I said to them that uh, there will only be one question, and it's probably the most important question that they will ever answer, not only in seminary, but in life. And it's the question, what is the gospel? I asked this question for more than 20 years. And I read, no overstatement, I read thousands, thousands of answers. Master's student, doctoral students. I can say to you, I never got a wrong answer. Never. But most of the answers were incomplete. And they weren't robust. They weren't fully biblical. They were just a part of the gospel. And so, what I want us to recognize is that the meaning of the gospel is actually simple enough for a child to understand. I mean, a child could correctly answer this question right now and say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I'd go, bingo! You got it. Correct answer. But the gospel is also so deeply profound that the greatest theologians and philosophers, the greatest minds of all time, could never grasp its depths on the other end of the continuum. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that God calls you to go deeper in your understanding of his amazing grace and love for you in his Son and by his Holy Spirit. And let me tell you why. Let this sink in. This is because the degree to which you understand the gospel and the degree to which you therefore can apply the gospel to your life is directly related to the degree to which your life will be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
contrary to popular opinion, and it's blatant today among Christians today, the gospel is not just a gate that we must all pass through one time to be forgiven and to have eternal life. It is that, but it's more. You'll hear that theme a lot, but there's more. It's also a path that we need to be walking every day of our lives to grow spiritually. Now, I hear Tim will once in a while quote those old dead white guys, the English Puritans, whom I love as well. English Puritans used to say what I'm struggling to say here to you now, simply this, the gospel is not only how God saves sinners, it's also how God sanctifies saints. Amen. I'll hear that amen. But the problem today is that there is often a high fog factor when it comes to knowing how to grow deeper in our understanding and application of the gospel. Now, to help us better do that this morning in the time that we have, first, I want you to think about your answer to this pop quiz question. If you can, let Scotty beam you back to my classroom. And you've just come in, and it's your first class, and I say, pop quiz. Hear me saying that to you now. What's your answer? What would you write down? Think about it. Pause. What is the gospel? If you dare, write it down. What is the gospel? And I want to give you a heads up, and I'll, I'll intentionally, I'll, I'll, I'll lapse into professorial mode if I'm not careful, but I will intentionally be preparing you for the final exam all the way through this sermon. And I'll do it by saying, heads up, here comes an answer that you'll be asked on the final, very appropriate with RBC graduation. <laughs> and it will be the same question on the final exam. That was the question of the pop quiz. After you hear this, I'll ask you again. What's your answer to the question? What is the gospel? Now, my normal preaching method is that of your pastors, so don't think I've gone liberal on you here. My normal preaching method is to preach paragraphs or preach a one verse. There are two people here today that were in the first church I ever planted back in the 70s before the flood. <laughs> and they had to endure 53 weeks through the, through the book of Ephesians, through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. My philosophy of preaching is that of Martin Lloyd-Jones, go deep and stay under. Okay? So please don't think I've gone liberal on you here. What, what I'm doing is this. Understand what's happening, that you can, you can examine a set of verses, or you can examine one particular verse, or you can focus on one particular word that is used in multiple verses by multiple New Testament authors. 
That's what we're doing this morning. And that word, that word is the word, the Greek word euangelion. It's the word we translate gospel. It's used 75 times in the Greek New Testament by the New Testament authors. Now, historically, let's do the context of this. Historically, this word for gospel was first used before the time of Christ, way before the time of Christ, in secular contexts that were both political as well as military. And this gospel, when it was proclaimed, brought great joy to its hearers. For instance, in the first century, the emperor, the king, Augustus, achieved a significant military victory over Rome's enemies. And so he would carry out the practice. He would send heralds with the euangelion, the proclamation. Now, Understanding the nature of this euangelion is so important to grasp. It's understanding that what they would proclaim is basically two things. Who the king is and what the king has done to deliver his people from their enemies through his conquest. You see that? That was the nature of this word gospel used in military political context. I have good news of who your king is and what your king has done to deliver you from his and your enemies. That's the original meaning of this word in its secular context. And your response should be when you hear this, Great joy, renewed loyalty, and a pledge of allegiance to him as Lord. Hear the word? The New Testament writers use this same word to describe this same kind of good news. But it was just who the true king is and what the true king has done to deliver you from some real enemies, think Satan, sin, and death, that is meant to bring you great joy and cause you to bow before him in, in acknowledging who he is and what he's done and to pledge your allegiance to him. That's the nature of the gospel. So, first, heads up. I just gave you your first answer. Did you hear it? This will be on the final. This will be on the final. At the core, the New Testament gospel must be seen as the proclamation of who God is and what God does through King Jesus to deliver you from all your enemies. That's good news. Almost make a Presbyterian shout. That's hard. Okay. Yeah, I'm a Presbyterian. Okay. 
But here we go. Let's go deeper. Here comes the theme. Let's go deeper. So let's ask the question. It's almost like a biblical catechism. Let's ask this question. If the gospel is who God is and what he's done, what does the Bible teach about the simple answer to that question? Who is God and what has he done? Who is God? The Bible's answer is simple, clear, and profound. There is only one God, and he is triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is God? Triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does this one triune Lord do in history that is such good news? When God reveals to us in Scripture the good news about who He is and what He does to deliver us, we see an amazing story unfold from the beginning of time to the end of time. See the outline in your notes, the second page of your bulletin. It's an outline of the chapters of that story. You see, in this story, we are meant to see three magnificent acts of the triune Lord in history to deliver his people and the world from the enemies of Satan's sin and all its consequences. Now, theologians like to use a lot of Latin. Those of you with RBC know that that was one of R.C. Sproul's famous things to throw a little Latin at you. And theologians love, especially Bavink, loves to use the Latin here, magnalia, magnalia day. That the essence of the good news are the magnificent acts of God. You want to know what the good news is? It's who God is, it's triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his Magnalia Day, his magnificent acts, that's the gospel. What are these magnificent acts? Look at the right side of your bulletin. And I want you to see there's a little interruption here, but you can see three acts in four events that have happened in world history. Look at the first one. In the beginning, we see the magnificent acts and see the Trinity here. The magnificent acts of God the Father in his creation of humanity in the world. This reflects the earliest creed in Christendom. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then we see, notice it's a bullet. It's not a magnificent act of God, but it's a horrible act of the arch enemy, Satan. And the fall of humanity and the world into sin. But God's plan for humanity and the world would not be thwarted with its origin in creation. So we see the Magnalia Day of the Son, the magnificent acts of God the Son. Now it's the Father in creation, but it's the good news of the Son in redemption. But there's more. Look at the final. 
followed by the magnificent acts of God the Spirit in the restoration of humanity and the world up to the end of time. So heads up. Here comes another answer to the question you will be asked at the end of this term. So therefore, what's your second answer to what is the gospel? The good news revealed to us in these stories. The good news revealed to us in the totality of the revelation of God's word. From Genesis to Revelation is this. Notice the Trinity and notice the magnificent acts in this definition. The good news is that the Father's creation of humanity in the world, ruined by the fall of humanity into sin, has been redeemed by Jesus Christ and is being restored by His Holy Spirit, not finished, into the original goal, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. Therefore, the good news about God's salvation in Jesus Christ is all about redeeming and restoring all things that were lost in creation because of the fall. This is the essence of salvation. This is the core biblical meaning of salvation. Augustine put it this way, the church father. He said, therefore, when you understand this Magnalia Day, when you understand the essence of salvation as recreation in worship. Augustine would, would write prayers for people to do in public worship, and they would praise God, get this, in English. They would praise God as, you are our former and reformer. You are our creator and our recreator. You are our maker and our remaker. You alone are to be praised. Salvation, now Walter says, can only be understood as creation regained. There's our introduction. Tim told me to preach for at least an hour. He said, <laughs> okay, there's our introduction. Number one. Is this okay, Tim? Okay, he's with you. Okay. Now, to help us go deeper in our understanding and application of God's radical love for us, let's look at these magnificent acts. In other words, that's the rest of the message. Let's look at the magnificent acts of God and allow it God's, by God's Spirit to cause us to, to experience more amazement in His grace that our allegiance might be heightened. So let's look briefly now at the good news found in each of these acts in history. Number one, point number one. It's good news. The gospel is good news about the magnificent acts of God the Father in His creation 
of humanity in the world. See the link. You cannot understand salvation without understanding creation and salvation as recreation. So let's look first at this great magnificent act. In the beginning, God created the world. Why did God create the world? The Bible says, amen, for his glory. I'll just fill it out a little bit. God created the world to be an eternal, cosmic display of his glory as he rules over everything as Lord. Don't miss the connection between glory and kingdom. You see, God created us to reflect his glory as we find our ultimate joy in him and in his mission to fill the earth and rule over it as Lord so that the paradise of his kingdom will extend on earth for eternity. That's why the world exists. That's why you exist. And when God created the paradise in the Garden of Eden, it was literally, and I'll say this again later, it was literally heaven on earth. It was literally God's kingdom displayed in a subsection of the earth called Eden, in a subsection of Eden called the garden. And Adam and Eve there experienced ultimate joy and peace and happiness. This was because, and this is critical, if you miss this, you'll miss everything from this message. That was because when God originally created humanity and the world, they were created as a threefold blessing. Now understand these three blessings in creation as critical to understand the gospel. Look at each of these. Number one, humanity. Adam and Eve created with a perfect standing of innocence before God. Don't miss that as we fast forward in a little bit to see the recreation. God gave them intimate access into his presence and a union with him characterized by perfect love and trust between a father and a child. It was an intimate union that brought them constant joy and constant fulfillment in God's presence. So number one, the blessing of a perfect standing that allowed them to enter into his holy presence with deep intimacy of father-child love. Number two, they were created with pure hearts. This gave them undivided affection for God. They cherished him. They found their greatest delight in him above everything else, leading them to honor him by knowing him, by loving him, by enjoying him as their heavenly father with their whole being. 
But there's more. He created not only humanity with a perfect standing and a pure heart, but the world, the garden in which he placed them was whole. This Hebrew word, shalom, it was peace. It was whole. It was ultimate completion. It was a whole world. In other words, don't miss this about the kingdom. When you think about that original paradise before the fall, you should see it as God establishing his kingdom in that paradise on earth in which everything was the way it's supposed to be. There was a total absence of pain, of suffering, of sickness and death. There was no violence, no injustice, no poverty. It was literally heaven on earth. First chapter comes to a close. Curtains draw. This the next horrific chapter in history then takes place. The bad news about the horrible acts of Satan and the fall of humanity in the world. The degree to which you understand the effects of the fall are directly related to the degree you will understand the effects of Christ's redemption and the Spirit's restoration. Evil entered the world through a very real enemy called Satan who overthrew God's kingdom on the earth by tempting Adam and Eve to sin, resulting in the fall of humanity. Now, this is a critically important theological concept we learn from Romans. The Bible then teaches that when Adam sinned, that sin was rightly regarded by God to be the sin of all his descendants, the entire human race. The doctrine is called the imputation of Adam's sin. Critical to later understanding the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And as a result of sin, not only humanity, but all of God's creation came under God's just curse and came under Satan's rule. There's a sense in which, biblically, it became Satan's kingdom. Of course, under the decree of the sovereign God. So here's the bad news we must first embrace, or the good news will never be good. Although God is a loving and merciful Father... He is also a perfectly righteous and just judge. Therefore, God must punish sin. Or he will not be God. He will not be just. The result is a threefold curse. Everyone born since that time has been born under a threefold curse that reversed our original threefold blessing that God gave us in creation. Now, let's just look at each of these very briefly. Our perfect standing of innocence became what? A guilty standing of condemnation. 
under God's just curse. We were born separated from God, alienated from his loving presence. But not only did our perfect standing become a guilty standing, our pure hearts, this is heartbreaking, became corrupt hearts. Again, Augustine called this disordered loves. Our heart and the loves of our heart became scrambled, finding love and life and all kinds of things other than the only source that satisfies. And so we were born dead to God, enslaved to idols, with ungodly lives and disobedience to Him. And then not only was our perfect standing reversed with a guilty standing, our pure heart with a, with a corrupt heart, but the whole world, the whole world became a broken world that was previously a whole world in all spheres, socially, culturally, politically, economically, mostly relationally. We became alienated from God and under his just curse. And this alienation, grasp this imagery, this alienation and this curse flowed like a polluted river into all our relationships, beginning with the broken relationship with God and then flowing into the relationship with ourselves and issues of mental health, our relationship with others and all the brokenness we have in relationships and our relationship with creation in light of our sense of purpose and meaning of why we're here. And worse than all this, the Bible tells us that there is absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves from this just curse and all the brokenness and all the corruption. You see, all world religions except Christianity consist in things people are trying to do to be right with God. But the problem is the Bible teaches that's not possible to do enough because we'd have to be perfectly righteous. This brings us to the third chapter. Now, here's where the Magnalia Day goes on steroids. Okay? The good news about the magnificent acts of God the Son in His redemption of humanity in the world. I'm setting you up for the great reversal. You see, the good news is that God's purpose for fallen humanity and creation would not be thwarted. Soon after the fall, God reveals his plan of salvation when he proclaims the gospel for the first time. And that was another one of my pop quizzes for 22 years. Who among here will raise your hand, hypothetical, not asking you, and tell me, who proclaimed the gospel for the first time in the Bible, and to whom? Answer, the Bible tells us that the first person to, re to proclaim the gospel was God, and the person 
that he proclaimed the gospel to was Satan after he overthrew his kingdom. And in that curse, God promises to send a deliverer who will defeat him ultimately. The promised seed who will crush his head. And Paul draws on that imagery at the end of Romans. And restore fallen humanity and creation to flourish as God's kingdom on earth again. So what's happening in the Old Testament? Let me give you a survey of the Old Testament in two minutes. Okay? The Old Testament reveals how God carries out this good news of God's plan for salvation through a series of covenant promises and oaths. First, through people like Adam and Noah. Then, through Abraham and the nation of Israel under the leadership of people like Moses and David. And then it's called the silent years. For 400 years, there was silence. And Jesus shows up, proclaiming the euangelion, proclaiming good news of who he is and what he's come to do. He is the promised Redeemer King who has come to rescue us from God's just curse and our enemies of Satan, sin, and death by reestablishing God's kingdom on the earth forever like it was meant to be in plan A at creation. That's why Jesus almost always in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can hardly ever find the word gospel without the word kingdom right next to it. That's why. That's why. And in the New Testament, then, Jesus' apostles use this word 75 times to reveal to us that there were, heads up, five historic events. There were five gospel events, five magnificent historic events that Jesus did. That's who he was. What did he do? The New Testament tells us there are five things that Jesus did. Number one, his birth. This is mind-boggling. This is the good news that in order to rescue us and this runaway planet, let this sink in, the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, took on a human nature and entered our story as one of us, a.k.a. Christmas. <laughs> Supposed to be. <laughs> Reverse Santa, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but it was not only this Magnalia day of the Son's birth, the incarnation, but it was his life. Did you know Jesus saved you just as much by his life as by his death? The Bible teaches as God's second Adam, see the link to creation? As God's second Adam, Adam had failed, here comes the second Adam. He lived the life 
that Adam and Eve should have lived. He lived the life that we should live, he, meaning he faced all the temptations from our enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil that defeated Adam and Eve, that defeated us, that defeat us. And he never sinned. Why is that significant? Don't miss this. Because when he never sinned, and he suffered by not sinning for you, he was earning a record of perfect righteousness. That you could never earn by perfectly obeying the law of God. But there's more. Not only his birth, event one, not only his life, event two, but his death, the preeminent event. Jesus also became our substitute, not only in his life, but also in his death. And when he died on the cross, he did not simply experience the pain of physical suffering and death. He suffered the full wrath and the full punishment of God that we deserve because of our sin. The Bible says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died the death we deserve to die in our place. And on the cross, Jesus delivered the fatal blow to Satan. The promise was fulfilled. He crushed his head. And he conquered his horrible rule over broken humanity in the world. But then there's more. Not only his birth, not only his life, not only his death, but his resurrection. Please link this story to the resurrection beyond life after death. You see, the good news of the resurrection is that three days later, God raised him from the dead, proving that his rescue mission was a success. This is the good news, that Jesus not only conquered Satan's sin and death, but he inaugurated God's kingdom on the earth by doing this, by revealing himself, what the Apostle Paul calls, the firstborn from the dead of all of us who will one day be raised from the dead when he returns in the new heaven and new earth. Amen. Amen. But there's more. Not only his birth, not only his life, not only his death, not only his resurrection, but all of this was leading up to his ascension. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended back to the Father's right hand, where as we sit in this room this morning, he is now ruling over everything as king and head of the church, carrying out God's will until Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. But there's more. The good news is not only these gospel events about what Jesus did, but it's who he is now because of what he did. 
You see, because of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the Bible tells us that God has now made him Savior and Lord. As Savior, the Father has given him sole authority and power to deliver us from God's threefold curse of a guilty standing, a corrupt heart, and a corrupt world. And as Lord, God has now given him the authority to demand that everyone everywhere now submit to his rule by repenting and trusting in him as Savior and Lord. Bow now or bow later. Everyone here will one day bow. So the good news is this. It's not only what Jesus did and who Jesus is as Savior and Lord because of what he did. It's also the culmination of the gospel events and the gospel affirmations. What really brings it home to us this morning, to our hearts, is the gospel promises that God now makes through this Savior and Lord to all who will bow before him and pledge their loyalty and allegiance in repentance and faith. This brings us to the last point. The last chapter. The consummation. Look at point number four. The good news about the magnificent acts of God the Holy Spirit in his restoration of humanity in the world. You see, when Jesus ascended back to the Father, God poured out his Spirit on his people at Pentecost as evidence that Jesus is now seated on God's throne as Savior and Lord for the purpose of restoring God's new humanity on the earth. God's new Israel called the church by his Holy Spirit. You see, the good news is also that God now promises by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit to deliver you from sin and all its consequences so that he might restore your broken union with him because of sin. You see, the highest blessing of the gospel, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what's the highest blessing of the gospel? There's one phrase he uses over and over and over and over and over again, in Christ. The highest blessing of the gospel is being in union with the triune God because you are in Christ that God's love for you is the same love he has had for eternity for his only son. It cannot be broken. That'll really make a Presbyterian shout. <laughs> and to restore you to himself, the good news is that God promises to do some magnificent acts in you by his Holy Spirit. Now, this is our last reversal, so listen up. Because this is the reversal of reversals. He promises to reverse this threefold curse of your guilty standing, your corrupt heart, and our corrupt world by promising you a threefold blessing. Do you see it? He promises you a new standing. He promises you a whole new heart. 
And he promises you a whole new, whole world. So in the time we have remaining, let's just look at these and ask the Holy Spirit to cause us to marvel at the promises God makes you in Christ. The degree to which you understand these promises is directly related to the degree to which your life will be transformed. First, God promises to reverse your condemned standing of guilt by forgiving you and giving you a whole new standing before him. The gospel is like a multifaceted jewel. Look at these facets, all under the umbrella of a new standing before God. This is the good news that through Jesus' shed blood for you on the cross that we were just singing about, God declares, God promises that his just wrath against you for your sin is now satisfied completely satisfied in the death of his son. This is called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It is under attack today by leading authors, popular N.T. Wright, threatening this doctrine. The Bible calls this propitiation. Propitiation. Number two, this is also the good news that God as judge now considers the horrible record of all your sin to be on Jesus and the perfect record of all Jesus' perfect obedience to be yours. This is called the great exchange. Justification. But number three, this new standing, the other facets of the jewel is also good news that God now considers himself to be your heavenly father and he promises to see you in Christ. I mean, that, is, that will blow your mind that the love he has for you is an unparalleled love. It's the ultimate of all loves. It's a love that cannot be broken. It's such an astounding love that the Apostle Paul just messes up Greek syntax sometimes, just going on and on about how wonderful this love is. God's love for you is so astonishing. It's the same love he has for his son. It's called the, the doctrine of adoption. We sang about it in that beautiful Ephesians 1 praise chorus just now. So number one, God promises to reverse your condemned standing of guilt and give you a new standing through the good news of propitiation, justification, and adoption. Let those multiple images awaken your heart. But there's more. Not only does he reverse, does he promise by his Holy Spirit to reverse your guilty standing with a new standing, but he promises to reverse the curse of your corrupt heart by giving you a new heart. This is unbelievable and so often missed in Scripture. God's plan is to save you not only from sin's penalty, but also from its moral corruption and its domineering power over your life by giving you the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit. 
Problem is, in a lot of our circles in the Reformed world, it's Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. This is the good news, that God promises to give you a new heart and a new spirit, His Holy Spirit to live within you so you have new desires and new power to love and obey and honor and enjoy Him. The Bible calls this regeneration. The Bible calls this new birth. Whitfield was once asked, why do you always talk about people needing to be born again? Every time, all the time. Why are you always talking about people need to be born again? His answer, famous answer, because people need to be born again. <laughs> and you're born again by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit applying the finished work of Christ. Not only applying His blood to you so you have a new standing, but taking your corrupt heart and giving you a new heart with new power and new focus. You realize what this means? No matter what you're, some of you are in bondage listening to me right now. You're in bondage to sin. This means you can be free. Hear this. He sets the captives free. The sin that you have been dealing with, and I know for some of you it feels like forever, you can be free. He promises you not freedom from sin's influence. You're going to struggle with sin till your dying breath. He promises you freedom from sin's dominance over your life that so dominates you that you can't love God and love others deeply and well, and it robs you of joy. He can set you free. Problem is you don't believe the gospel. The Bible calls this being ransomed, being redeemed, so you can experience sanctification. See all these doctrines of systematic theology? They're rich when they're understood in the context of the gospel. And finally, the good news of not only replacing our condemned standing with a new standing, our corrupt heart with a new heart by the Spirit, but that God does even more. And He promises to reverse the curse on our entire corrupt world by giving us a whole new world. When Jesus returns. I mean, Narnia's got nothing on us. I mean, on that day, God will raise all people who have ever lived from the dead to stand before him for that final judgment. And we must not skirt the bad news of that final day. Because as just judge, he will then separate all who rejected him, all who did not bow before him in repentance and faith, from his merciful presence forever in hell. But for those who bowed before the king, hearing the proclamation of who he is and what he's done, they will experience not only him as just, they will not experience him as just judge, but as merciful savior. 
and he will usher all of you into a new creation where heaven will finally return to earth like it was meant to be, to be the paradise. This is not a return to Eden. This is, this is far better than Eden. I don't want to go back to Eden. A garden. I want to go to a city, the city of God. You see, everyone who goes to heaven is going to be making a round trip. Did you know that heaven is not eternal? It's like, you know, I travel so much. It's like I'm at a hub. I'm just here for a little bit. But this is on my way to the destination. The final destination. Heaven is a weird, a weird state right now where your body is disconnected from your soul. It's called the intermediate state. That when Jesus returns, that soul, oh, it's, it's blessed to be with Christ is gain. I mean, it's wonderful. It's, we should rejoice in that. But let me tell you, there's more. And that's when that eternal soul is reunited with that body at the final resurrection. And you can even come up to me on that day and grab me, physically touch me and say, remember? Remember when we talked about that at Grace Fellowship? Woo! Are you shouting yet, you old Presbyterian? But glory. <laughs> you see, when Jesus returns, the kingdom paradise, think of all four now, think, going back to the story as we're landing the plane. When Jesus returns, the kingdom paradise that the Father created on the earth in the beginning, the kingdom on earth that was thwarted by Satan, and sin in the garden. The kingdom that the Son inaugurated on earth through His redeeming death, resurrection, and ascension will finally come to earth in all its fullness by the restoring power of His Holy Spirit. And when this happens, God promises that He will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. And when that happens, you'll say like Jewel the Unicorn at the end of the Chronicles of Nardia. I've come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life. That's the good news. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit, draw near to us in our pain, in our suffering, in our brokenness, in our unquenched thirst for more than this world can give us. Give us, even now, in this moment, the gifts of repentance and faith.
If there are those here who have never bowed before you as king and who have understood the good news of who you are and what you have done now for the first time with clarity, call them, O Holy Spirit, to yourself. Cause them to be born again. Draw near to the king in repentance and faith. And for all of us who have experienced his pardon by our repentance and faith in the past, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, give us renewed repentance and faith that we might be delivered from sin's domineering power that holds us captive, even as your followers. Lord King, set the captives free. And do it now. For we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.